0: Good morning. We are our 33rd book in our, the big book cover to cover series, which is interesting. Uh, just, it's a number, but it's interesting. Um, we sang a song and I, I'm going to ask Michelle, can you go back to the slide um, that has the text that before the, the, before the chorus, the race has been run with every breath, I here it is. Thank you. Forgive me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. Uh, Professor John Hanna. Uh, historical theologian, prof that I had for many years, and a dear friend to this day, uh, would sing a line like that. And he goes, I just lied again. I lo- with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. I mean, who can say such a thing? It's a worship. We're petition. We're, we're asking for that to be our lot. But, but then he continues. For he has said that he will bring me home, and day by day I know he will redeem me until I stand with joy before the throne. Paul wrote in Galatians. Uh, two, in fact, we know this. Galatians 2:20. For I have been crucified. Say it with me. You know it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live lives in me, and the life I now live, what? In the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Uh, There are perhaps verses in your Christian life that are in mine that were verses that just exploded off the text when I studied that. And I can still remember in college a single uh, guy in college living in a house with about 10 other college guys and reading that verse and the lights went on. It's not making the flesh better. It's the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. But it is the life of flesh that we live in and we're torn. And so I read a phrase like that and uh, the flesh part of me goes, I don't, I don't with every breath long to follow Jesus. I don't. I, that would be uh, uh, super religiously zealous to say that and a lie. Um, but why? He has said that he will bring me home. And so the destination of the song, the movement of the song is we're going somewhere. And so what? Day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand. And that's the great part that he forgives us again and again and again and again. Father, we come before you as broken men and women, sinful though we be, you love. We do not understand, I don't understand why you love the likes of me. We know it is not based on merit or goodness or being better than someone else. We know it's based solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ and that's the only place we can cling. So we rest by faith even when we're anxious about our future, anxious about our, our health, anxious about our ultimate destination. When we die we have a lot of worries in this world that add nothing to our life. Yet we're human and we're failing and we make mistakes and we sin and yet you love help us to be more motivated by love and grace and mercy toward you and toward this life than simply always running and repenting and thinking about how we're forgiven help us to understand forgiveness is a motivation to live a different life not merely to come back again and again and ask for that forgiveness As we look into the lives of the ancients, we acknowledge with humility we are no different than them. We would be just like them in that setting. So we look at these men and women through eyes of compassion and understanding, yet their journey, their life, their experience in faith, uh, their consequences of their sins are lessons that shout through history and time, eternal truth that reminds us of our desperate estate if it were not for the person and work of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life, sinless, who died the perfect death as the only substitutionary sacrifice, the only one good enough to get your attention in a way that he completed the law, he fulfilled the law, he paid our price. And for those who've trusted, who've put our faith in, who've believed in the person and work of Jesus, we're given this gift called eternal life. We're given forgiveness of sins. We're given your spirit to indwell and transform us into what we are not. And we desperately need your help. Keep us more to your word, to your spirit, to your people. Keep us sharpened. Keep us on edge in the sense that we want to grow and lean forward in our faith and not, not become lackadaisical or apathetic or passive. But to wake up with a new day and a new charge and ask how do we serve you? How do we grow how do we love those in our sphere of influence how do we be the man the woman you want us to be we need your help not a little but a lot we need your help we're desperate because in our flesh we're only trying to make the flesh better so remind us often that you love that you encourage that you are there Uh, encourage us daily to be in the word to be quiet with you to be in prayer. To take these spiritual disciplines seriously, not because they merit favor, but because they forge a relationship. And that is knowing your word, your mind, your spirit, and to be the men and women that represent Christ well. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the series, the big book cover to cover, and we come to this minor prophet named Micah. He prophesies during a period of social injustice in Judah. We've talked again and again, bears repeating, about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel in the north, Judah in the south. I comes before J. This is the divided kingdom. This is not what God intended back to the Davidic monarchy. Uh, Saul, of course, is not also ran. He's not considered the first king in Israel. David is. And that is very important as we look at the book of Micah. Um, To go back to our friends Bruce Wilkinson and Ken Boa and their great resource talk of the Bible, Micah prophesied during a, a period of intense social injustice in Judah. False prophets preached for riches, not for righteousness. Princes thrived on cruelty, violence, and corruption. Priests ministered more for greed than for God. Landlords stole from the poor and evicted widows. Judges lusted after bribes. Businessmen used deceitful scales and weights. Sin had infiltrated every segment of society. A word from God was mandatory. And that that applies today, does it not? There's nothing new, uh, 8th 8th century B.C. They continue, Micah enumerates the sins of the nation, sins which will ultimately lead to destruction and captivity. But in the midst of blackness, there is hope. A divine deliverer will appear, and righteousness will prevail. Though justice is now trampled underfoot, it will one day triumph. Um, so we've got these tandem things going, a lot of overlap with these prophets, a lot of overlap with the time span, what's going on. Uh, Micah is delivering this to the southern part of the country, let's say, uh, although the northern kingdom is in earshot, they're, they're aware of this. In every prophetic record, whether it's a major or minor prophet, judgment and condemnation and the warning of wrath is the prominent theme. But they all tie back to a number of things. They all tie back to Abraham i all tie back to the Mosaic Covenant. Abraham is the one that God chooses to build his people group called Israel. Moses is the one he gives the law to to give to his people. So those two patriarchs, those two fathers are imprinted in the mind of every good pious Jew and they should be for every Christian. You should understand our legacy goes all the way back to God choosing Abraham and God choosing Moses to be the lawgiver. The Mosaic covenant was, of course, an if-then covenant. If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I'll bring the curses of Egypt upon you. And they knew this. You do this as parents, you do this in work. You don't know it, perhaps, as specifically, but if you do this, reward comes. If you don't do these things, there will be consequences. This is not a new idea, and this was the Mosaic Covenant. Again and again, the prophetic record goes back to Abraham and the Mosaic Covenant. Now, one of the fine distinctions, and we look at these prophets in some detail and how they're different, how they're similar. One of the fine distinctions of the prophet uh, Micah, we, we could simply say he was a rural prophet. Isaiah's speaking to kings and princes and people in power, but Micah, is he's out in the country, if you will. He's out in the lower areas, more remote areas. I've commended to you many times Dr. Constable's notes on the Bible, and he was very helpful in trying to synthesize this. He cites an author named George Adam Smith who makes an interesting observation on this I had not thought of. Social wrongs are always felt most acutely, not in the town, but in the country political discontent and religious heresy take their start among the industrial and manufacturing centers but the first springs of social revolt are all uh, are nearly always found among rural populations and i I kind of agree with that and i kind of don't it's just an interesting observation i would never have thought of but city centers i mean think about just illustratively uh, this idea of a popular vote in america let's just go to the population three biggest groups and forget everybody else and what what uh, smith is observing is when those big populations have something going amok It comes later and impacts these rural areas. It's just an interesting point. Um, The discontent and heresy take their start, we would say, in the big cities, but where the springs of social revolt are felt, because people are doing their own thing. You know, if you're a rural community, you're working, you're making ends meet, you might be agriculture, you might be in, in some, you know, uh, uh, land developments, you might be uh, a teacher in a, a, smor- a smaller area, smaller district, and you're not as concerned about those things going on in the big city. That's what he's ma- the point he's making. But those big city affects, and their sin, of course, affects the rural populations. Micah is the one talking to the... Think of him as an itinerant guy in East Tennessee or an itinerant guy in West Tennessee. He's out, in, you know, way beyond the Williamson County bubble that we all live in. Now a common theme in all these prophecies is nothing new, but it's good to remind ourselves God will discipline His people. He will judge them for their sins. But He will also fulfill His covenant promises that He made to His chosen people. And He will do that ultimately in the future. But that, if you're going to put a big theme, it's not concise, it's not crisp, it's not clever, but that really is the theme of most prophetic literature. God is going to discipline His people, judging them for their sins. Yet He made a covenant promise to chosen people, and I'll use that CPCP to help me remember, covenant promise, chosen people, and he will not negate those promises he made. And they are secure, but if then, if you do this, this is gonna happen. So we're reading the if then uh, of the ultimate future we look forward to. We could also add a little more precisely in the book of Micah. He's going to introduce the idea of the remnant a little more pronounced than some of the other prophets. Now, outlining this book is is interesting. Uh, There are as many as 20 sections. You could outline it that detailed. Uh, The word oracle, uh, sometimes you read that in your English Bible. The prophecy, the oracle, the message that they're given. Uh, I want to Put handles on three oracles or three messages just as a way of looking at the book. And they all begin with the word here, H E A R, which takes us back to what? Deuteronomy 6 4. Here we call this the Great Shema. It's, you know, we, uh, Um, you think of the beginning sentence of the Bill of Rights or the beginning sentence of an amendment. People might know that. The beginning sentence of the Westminster Confession, you might know that. But what follows was what was key and the great Shema was, pay attention Israel, you have a monotheistic God. The Lord your God is one. And Deuteronomy 6.4 is the sharpening stone, the whetstone to teach your children these things. Well, Micah in kind uses this phrase, Listen up Israel, hear Israel, and again he's going to talk about the remnant, but let me show you these three passages very briefly. Micah chapter 1 verse 2, hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, not just speaking to the Jewish people of Judah or Israel. In fact, goyim, the nations, is mentioned in the book of Micah. Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Pay attention. Second one, you might hinge the book on, chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Pay attention, you leaders. You're supposed to be doing well. You're supposed to be executing judgment and justice. And then finally, Micah 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. So we've moved from this, pay attention, nations. Aren't you supposed to be doing what's right? To This is the the end game. This is what God's saying about this. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. So these three kind of follow a hinge, if you will, of a way of looking at the book. Now, the remnant is an interesting notion, and most of us, when we think about the word remnant, um, we might have different views on it. Um, There's a gentleman named Thomas McMiskey, McMiskey, or Miss Kaminsky, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. And when when we think of a remnant, I don't know about you, but my mind runs to post-apocalyptic movies. You know this ragtag group of survival of the fittest people. They're living in you know blown-out buildings or whatever, and underground. And they've got this network. And you know this is a whole attraction to this, these shows, The Walking Dead, which I've watched one, and I don't know anything else about it. I won't watch anymore. Uh, but but these stories about what happens when the end comes, whether it's a nuclear waste or you know, of course it's going to be a virus, right? Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> just as a sidebar, I think 18,000 some people have died year to date in America on the flu, something like that. Last year it was 18, 16,000, the numbers are hard to nail down. Wash your hands. All right. Uh, <clears throat> see, the godly came to church today. You're fearless. You came to church today. You know better. Uh, well, so you think about this post-apocalyptic remnant thing, and um, Mikamiski, however you say his name, Mick, Kaminsky uh, has a fascinating take on this. Micah's doctrine of the remnant is unique among the prophets and is perhaps the most significant contribution to the prophetic theology of hope. The remnant is a force in the world, not simply a residue of people, as the word remnant may seem to imply. It is a force that will ultimately conquer the world. This was a game changer for me. I never thought of a remnant being observed that way. Now understand he's talking about the book of Micah, not all of Scripture. He continues, this triumph, while presented in apparently militaristic terminology, is actually accomplished by other than physical force. By removing everything that robs his people of complete trust in him, the ruler of Bethlehem, from Bethlehem will affect the deliverance of his people. Now watch this last sentence. The source of the power of God's people in the world is their absolute trust in him and his resources. This is a really good lesson. The source of our trustworthiness, our power, our confidence is in God's resources, not man's. And again, this is a game changer for me theologically thinking. It's a great lesson. How many times in history do we look back at Christians who were this remnant or a cloister or they were anti the church or anti the people or anti-government or, you know, and they lived in communities and even in your lifetime, I mean, whether you look at the Branch Davidians or the Jones mask, I mean, there's all sorts of illustrative you know, where you have cults that pull away and they call themselves a remnant, but they're toxic and they're ingrown and they're uh, they're sick and spiritually abusive and on we could go and uh is is saying something different here the source of power for god's people in the world is their absolute trust in him and his resources Uh, all else is of the flesh and we, again, in our Western mindset, I think we all, uh, maybe not intentionally, but I think that the, the unconscious way we work is, if I get these things accomplished, I'll be okay. Whether it's your job, your career, your finances, your raising your children, your college funds, your music career, your medical career, your education. If I do these things, then I, I expect a sort of a general trajectory, and that's not bad or wrong, but we, a lot of that's just in the flesh, isn't it? And then if we're an athlete or we're in music or we're going down the road, we're doing our best and we're hoping things line up so we get the opportunity, same as in business, and then when it happens, and so we're doing our best. Are you doing your best? Nothing wrong with that. But the subtlety is, am I doing this simply in the flesh, which is why I began with the song and talking about Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. And it's a tension I think we all live with all of our lives. Well, like all prophetic literature, there are warnings and judgments that are unmistakable themes. Micah has an interesting way of spelling these out. It's pretty easy to see and you can see it on the screen. He talks about broad people groups and then he addresses individuals. And the broad people groups are Samaria and Judah. And then the individuals are kind of a shopping list of sins. Uh, people that take other land, uh, land grabbers, false prophets, judges who take bribes, priests for hire. Uh, a lot of unsavory sinners. Cheaters, violent, liars, deceptive, idolaters, sorcerers, those who use wicked scales. A passage you might know in the book um, Opportunist murderers, and the list is rounded out with those who are, uh, that treat their parents with contempt. Whenever you read these lists, Paul does this in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, I think it is, uh, or 6, 9, where he has all this list of sins and then disobedient to parents. Well, wait a minute. How does murder and adultery line up with disobedient to parents? I mean, that's so, you know, the Bible must be wrong and out of context. Uh, To disrespect your elders, disrespect those in authority over you, is to disrespect God. Granted, we're human parents, and some of us are very poor at parenting. Some are really good at parenting. Uh, But even that, you must see the sovereign hand of God in your story. When we're teenagers, uh, most of us, there are a few that don't, most of us hate our parents. And most uh, parents of teenagers, uh, well, let's just say they don't like their children too much. They love them, but they don't like them too much. And um, you're, knowing, you're just praying that, you know, their brain's being formed, their emotions are on, on edge, they're going through a lot of stress in life. In middle school and high school are very difficult, not minimizing, they're very difficult times. Of our, uh, our, our generation was different. Today, a middle school is a crucible. It's really challenging to be a middle schooler. And social media does not help them succeed in life. And so you have all these tensions. All that to say, you know, this, this is a reminder as both parents, grandparents, and younger people, respect your elders, respect your parents. Doesn't mean they're right, they're perfect, they make all the best, but they hopefully in the main, especially in a Christian home, we're looking for men and women, they're trying to raise their children, single parents, to love Christ, to, to be responsible, to find something you love in life. Micah is pointing out, when you disrespect your parents, you're disrespecting God. That's strong medicine. Well, with these break, breathtaking judgments that he goes from national all the way down to disobedient children, um, we're, we're looking at the things that are going to help us in Micah. And I, I don't want to differentiate the appeal of truth and the appeal for truth. It's a very small prepositional difference. The appeal of truth. Truth is attractive and the appeal for truth. I want truth. And this is the subtext of the book of Micah. He's going to say, "You're going to come to find God at some point." There's an appeal to truth, huh? I wonder who's true. And then there's also looking for it, and do we know it's true? Think about our current election cycle. Do we believe anything people are saying when they're candidating? They change their positions with the current poll. So there's a there's a baked-in disbelief, and we're looking for where's the truth teller. Where's the one that has truth, right? Well, that's a pipe dream when it comes to politics. It's so wrought with intricacies. Um, And I love politics. I love men and women that have the courage to do that. But Micah is pointing out the same thing. Nothing is new. The appeal of truth and the search for truth remains. Micah chapter 4, verse 2. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain. Whenever we go up to the mountain, what are we doing? Worshiping. When you go up to the mountain, you're going to worship. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For, the, for from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. As many times as I've traveled to Jerusalem and Israel and done tours and led tours and been part of tours, um, I'm struck by the nations that come to this little tiny piece of dirt for all kinds of reasons. It's a, it's a strange bucket list. I find people are happy to go to Europe or Australia or New Zealand, but they're always skittish about going to Israel. It's just striking how people, we have this idea. We watch too much CNN or whatever. I don't know. We, we just, Israel's dangerous. Yeah, I feel safer in Israel than Antioch. <laughs> but you go to Israel, and you see the nations come to this little tiny sliver of land. And I step back and go, why? Why did they come here? What draws them here? What idea did they have? Why did they come? And I think it's God's delightful sense of humor. They're coming looking for truth. Now, I would write this in pencil or take it tentatively. This week, I wondered if there's an allusion here to the Sermon on the Mount. The nations will come and say, the goyim in the Hebrew text, will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And when Jesus fed the 5,000, the Decapolis, the 10 cities, and that's not specifically 10 cities, it's like all these surrounding, we'd say the greater metropolitan area or middle Tennessee, the 10 cities came up. The rumor of a man performing miracles and multiplying fish and loaves brought people from the northern area of Israel, not all of them necessarily Jews. We have no indication it says they were only Jews. And certainly by Pentecost, you see Jewish people that spoke all sorts of different language groups. But I find it striking that the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, and all the imagery from Mount Moriah, where Abraham is going to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, where uh, where the temple complex is established. And under uh, Solomon's time, uh, it all happens on that mount. And you kind of wonder mountains going up to worship, maybe this is a sermon on the mount. It's certainly an allusion to Christ because in chapter 5, we have the most messianic uh, minor prophet information of any minor prophet. Many people have referenced. He talks more about Messiah's birth than any other prophet in Scripture. Micah chapter 5 has a sweeping prophecy. Let me just read through these verses Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel." And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land, when he tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against him and uh, against him, seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. Christ is going to come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. We all know this. Uh, Matthew chapter two, verse three to six, calls on this passage to talk about the Christ lineage. Do you know who else was born in Bethlehem besides David? That's of importance. David. Who's the first king? Not Saul. David. David is born in Bethlehem, 1 Samuel 16, 1, verses 18 and 19. You can look it up on your own. It's super easy. The lineage of David, the throne that will last forever, the loins from whom Messiah is going to come, is the Davidic promise. 1 Samuel chapter uh, seven, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 and following. This is the Davidic promise, the eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel. I'm lost. Forgive me. 2 Samuel. And here's the Davidic promise. And oh, by the way, Jesus also comes from the line of David. Both of them were born in Bethlehem. Chapter 5, verse 2 expounds Jesus' eternality. It references from the days of long ago, the days of eternity. This is a clear prophecy about the Christ. Now, when this unstoppable judgment comes to the shore, God's requirements for man haven't changed. And this is the verse we all know in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Let's read this one together because you know it. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, let's read this together. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Um, Many, many people uh, love this passage. My wife loves this passage. Some of you might know the name Sam Erickson, Sam is a legend in a number of ways. He started the Christian Legal Society many, many years ago. He was in California uh, involved with what became known as the Clyde McKnight Trial. Took it all the way to the Supreme Court and won. He was the one who came up with the Equal equal Access Bill. So if you have a chess club in school, you can have an FCA club in school. And Sam was a a warrior for these things. And uh, this was Sam's motto do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. How counterintuitive to the way we live life. Maybe we work toward justice, but we don't always love kindness, and certainly, we well, not all of us, but we may have a problem with humility. We may have a problem keeping our mouth shut. Let others speak well of you in the gate. Don't don't toot your own horn. Um, I, I love bragging about my wife and how good she is in her job and how smart she is and how shrewd she is and I'm amazed at how she I I could never do what she does. I don't have the patience for it. I don't have the temperament for it. And I just marvel at the way she works with people and I just go, she's amazing. She can't say that about herself. But I can. Let someone else talk about you. Micah says, what's God require? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly. You could do worse than focusing on those three things your whole life. And that's why it's an attractive passage. God made man in his image. He made them male and female. He made us to be one. He made us to have a relationship with him, to worship him. And in this remarkable passage, he gives us this simple, simple alignment. What's what's he want of you? See, too many Christians, God, here's my passion. I want to do this. Bless my passion. And I don't mean to pick on anybody or hurt anybody's feelings, but we're in the middle of Music City. We're in the middle of an arts culture that, if you're going to be in art, you're going to have to be somewhat self-promoting and somewhat about your art, right? I mean, it's it's like a friend of mine who's a Christian politician. Yes, there are Christian politicians, and uh, I said, "How can you run for office and not be self-promoting?" He had no answer for me, and I don't think you could. So at some level, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, if you're an art expression, you've got to put yourself out there, which is a risky proposition for men and women who are in art. But can you do it Humility. with humility? Sure. It seems counterintuitive. A, a lot of social media and marketing and PR people talk about basically your brand and self-promoting. And I always get a little uncomfortable with that language. Not that there isn't a place for it, but how do we do it to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before our God? Well, that remarkable passage probably eclipses what I think may be a more attention getting passage, and that's in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Who is a God like you? It's a very clever wordplay, and this is where I wish we all, I wish Babel had never occurred and we could all read Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Who is a God like you is the name Micah in Hebrew. So this is why people say Micah wrote the book. It's a wordplay. M in Hebrew, not always, a lot of times it's a prefix and it's a question mark. So the name Michael, those of you that are named Mike or Michael, uh, it's a wonderful name. I grew up learning it meant uh, one who is like God. Don't tell a child that. That can go to their head. Um, when I learned Hebrew, I, I understood what the word really mean. Mich, the, the prefix M, is a question mark. El, Elohim, El Shaddai, okay. Michael, Michael. So look it's a question. Who is like God? Answer? No one. That's an even cooler name. Michael the Archangel. We consider him second to Lucifer, second to uh, the, the primary angel who, who, the, who was made to be over the angelic realm, and he falls, of course, and Michael the archangel is the one dispatched to do so many things. Uh, so think about the most amazing created angel in the, in the angel you know, kingdom, if you will, and who is like God? Not even this one. It's a great name, Michael. Micah is asking the same question. Who is, who is a God like you? Answer? Nobody. But look what Micah is saying, unlike what I'm expositing, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant. He does not retain his anger forever. He's not mad forever. His wrath is true. It's going to be there because he delights in unchanging love. Um, verse 19 he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And there's got to be an allusion to Genesis 3.15 on this. There's got to be an allusion of the, you know, if you grew up Catholic, you saw the, the, the picture of Mary in, in, in a sacred heart, and you saw the snake in different images, and you see Christ the sacred heart, and he's standing on a, a snake's head at the bottom of it. That's where the imagery comes from. And here we have the same in imagery. He's going to tread iniquities under his foot yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that a good thing to know? If you're, if you're a person that has a, a sensitive conscience and you feel guilty and ashamed a lot or it can be stirred up quickly and you, uh, I was that way in early, early Christian life. When I first came to Christ it was so dramatic. I was so ashamed of all that I had done and been before I knew Christ. And it haunted me. It haunted me. And out of that the Catholic upbringing of working off your sins and doing penance and you know all these type of things that can in a young mind can play havoc on your faith. And I remember vividly growing in Christ going wait a minute uh, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And as Luther would talk about in his own life when he had these fights with the devil. uh, The man between God and the devil. And he, he would preach the gospel to himself he said. So when the temptations came that I'm ashamed, I deserve hell, uh, they used the word mortal sin a lot, mortal sin in my life, I know I should go to hell, and he would preach the gospel to himself, saying, no, you believe Christ's promise, not your own guilt or the devil's temptation. And that's the way, that really the Lutheran thing, that's the, that's the solution to your anxiety as a Lutheran, is you preach the gospel to yourself. Your anxiety to Catholicism is you do good works and you try to be a good person. Your anxiety in evangelical Protestant Calvinism or whatever you want to call it is you trust in the gospel. You trust in the promise of God's word. Even though your mind plays havoc with you, am I good enough? Am I sins forgiven? I'm listening. I've shared this with you before. Philip Carey has a number of courses in the great teaching company or the great courses, whatever it's called today. And I've listened to his courses over and over and over and over. love the way he communicates. And he uses that analogy that every, quote, religion has anxieties. How are you going to deal with your sin? Are you really sure you're saved? Do you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven when you die? And that resonates universally with anybody that's got a conscience. What happens when I die? And again, in antiquity, people died at a lot higher rate than they do today, so death was a lot more around you. You were more aware of your life being brief. And Carrie makes this observation about the anxieties that Catholics have, not new to me, anxieties Lutherans have, anxieties Calvin. I love the analogy that what are you worried about? Why am I off on this long ditch? Because he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You're forgiven, men and women. You are forgiven. He loves you. He loves you. And the guilt and shame that can stir up from what you did with, you know, when you were a young person, licentious, immoral, drugs, whatever it was, your pride, whatever it is that haunts you, he forgives you. That's a remarkable thing. We should celebrate this, not live in shame and fear. I mean, we've been exposed a long time ago. It's nothing new to him, but you're forgiven. No matter what you've ever done, no matter what you're currently doing, he forgives. You and I must ask, we must seek him. He doesn't do it carte blanche, but as John tells us, If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge we're sinners, um, and that would be, again, Luther, he would metaphorically tell the devil, yeah, you're right, I should go to hell. Yeah, you're right, I'm a moral sinner. Yeah, you're right, I'm a terrible person. You're right, you're right. Go to hell, devil, I'm going to trust the gospel. I'm not going to trust you. And he would tell himself every day this in his deep depressions he had. Verse 20, you you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. To paraphrase Ralph Smith, this is only possible because God pardons iniquity and does not remain angry. This is only possible because God pardons iniquity and he does not remain angry. Do you hear that? He is a God of compassion who treads iniquities underfoot, casts sin into the depth of the sea, and keeps his covenant with Abraham. Micah caught a glimpse of the future kingdom of God when he saw that a future ruler in Israel would be born in Bethlehem. He would stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. That is a 25-hour paragraph. He distills the book of Micah that succinctly. God pardons iniquities and does not remain angry. Some of us had angry parents, angry fathers, angry mothers. You can still wake up in a cold sweat dream with an angry parent over you, or angry uncle, or somebody mad at you as a child. What a terrible thing for a child to be around an angry adult. That's horrible. It's unconscionable. Even if they're a brat, it's unconscionable. You don't throw anger and wrath at a little person who's defenseless to get someone who's older and stronger. God doesn't remain angry. I I don't know where you are in your spiritual maturity and growth. Uh, This was a revelation to me about 15, 20 years ago. God's not mad at you, Michael. And I'm not going to blame it on the Catholic Church or parenting or however, you know, my, I hate the word, my story, however my story came together, I'm not going to blame it on that. My reality was I thought God was mad at me. And I'm not going to analyze the why's behind that. I'm going to analyze how do I respond, and why do I think he was angry? Well, I had a bad idea of who God is. I had bad teaching. I had bad understanding. I had maybe self-information. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to pin it on anybody. I'm acknowledging that was that was freeing. Can I say it one more time? God's not angry at you. He hates your sin. He hates my sin, but he's not angry at you. He's a God of compassion. And finally, Bruce Waltke, another marvelous, wonderful quotation. In his first prophecy, Micah pictures Israel's ruler as a victorious conqueror. I love that. I would have never put those words together. A victorious conqueror. He rises from his heavenly throne, marches forth from his holy sanctuary, strides upon the earth's heights, under the heat of the Lord's glowing wrath and under his heavy tread, the eternal and majestic mountains melt and flow like hot wax. What a great language. And the arable, uh, I had to look that word up. That's land that can be furrowed or plowed or used to cultivate. And the arable plains, where mankind finds its immediate source of life, split apart like waterfalls, roaring down a rocky gorge. When this majestic God suddenly erupts with awesome power, puny human walls and fortifications crumble and fall into ravines. And again, if you've been to Israel, you see it. These fortifications that were built around the temple complex and they're huge rocks that weigh tons and they crumble and are in rubble that it would take gigantic equipment to set aright again. Humans feel secure as long as the long-suffering God remains in heaven. But when he marches forth in judgment, they are gripped by the stark reality that they must meet the holy God in person. Says Bruce Walkie. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who does not take sin lightly. You have a God who uh, sent his son to endure that wrath in our place instead of us. And If there's one point of the book of Micah is that you're the remnant. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a small percentage of those on the planet who love and follow Christ. And from perhaps a way of rethinking that is, how do I influence my sphere? How am I a good witness to those around me? Uh, We're not going to be Billy Graham or whoever else you want to fill in the blank, but you and I have a sphere of influence. And how do we see the people God's put in front of us And say, you know, I need to love them. I need to be humble, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before God. And let those people see that you have a different way of living because you have a different life. And that's all our hope.